Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 95, Plastic Love, on the development of polymers in the 1980s. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Supporters of my podcast can download a supplemental sheet with diagrams and molecular structures of many of the polymers I mention in this episode. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. It's probably fair to say that by the 1980s, the golden age of polymers, at least the fast and furious discovery of new and exciting materials, was over. But that doesn't mean invention of new polymers came to an end. On the contrary, there were still new polymeric materials being created and applied to commercial uses. That said, Many of the new polymers from the 1980s tended to be on the extreme end of materials' properties. For why invent a material that already does a decent job? Rather, can scientists come up with new polymers that solve unusual problems? So, with that introduction, let's dive in. Our first polymer is a type of polypropylene called biaxially-oriented polypropylene. We already encountered polypropylene in the 1950s. Polypropylene itself is a tough, popular polymer that can be heated to melting, cooled down, and reheated in cycles while remaining intact in usability. It's chemically resistant to acids and bases, at least when those chemicals are diluted, which means it's good for storing cleaning solutions. It's also an electrical insulator, so that it's good for electronic components. Polypropylene is not transparent, but translucent at best. For packaging purposes, polypropylene can come up short, largely because of its haziness and opacity, not being perfectly clear. The optical imperfections result from fluctuations in the refractive index inside the polymer, including spherical microblobs from processing, and also roughness at the surface of the plastic. The final plastic is partially crystallized. The large British chemical firm ICI, whom we have mentioned occasionally before, invented a new way to make polypropylene in 1961 called biaxially-oriented polypropylene. This method of making polypropylene involves extrusion and stretching in two perpendicular directions to make a polypropylene film. What does the two-way stretching do? It orients the polypropylene chains so that the microblobs are fewer and you get higher strength in the resulting film, and a film that's transparent. The orientation also allows you to print on the film better. Regular polypropylene isn't great for accepting inks. So, how is the stretching done? In the tenter process, 
you extrude a sheet of polymer, first in the direction of the machine, and then in the cross direction, giving a film of 13 micrometers to 64 micrometers thick. The other way to make biaxially oriented films is the double bubble process, by blowing the film outward like a bubble or balloon, then reheating and reblown up, giving a film a bit thinner than the tenter method. Over the 1960s, the first biaxially oriented polypropylene production units were built. So, really, the 1960s gave us this special type of polypropylene, now used for food packages, tape, textiles, and more. But the really new invention, using biaxially oriented polypropylene in the 1980s, our current point in the history of chemistry, was money, specifically banknotes. The first successful set of biaxially oriented polypropylene banknotes was issued in Australia in 1988 as a way to counteract counterfeiters. Such banknotes are natural now in dozens of countries, but to me as a citizen of the United States, which still relies on paper banknotes, this currency often feels like play money. There are specific advantages to these polymer banknotes. Fewer germs on them compared with the really dirty, bacteria-ridden paper notes. Cleaning the polymer banknotes is easier. They are more durable, more difficult to tear, and they weigh less, so transporting them is more energy efficient. Technology has even improved since 1988, allowing transparent windows and holographic gratings to be included. The next polymer we examine is high-modulus polyethylene, also called ultra-high molecular weight polyethylene. Like biaxially-oriented polypropylene, it was invented a while ago, back in the 1950s, and as the name implies, the polymer chains are really long, giving molecular weights of over three and a half million. This long chain creates a tough polymer, which has the highest impact strength for such polymers. Uses for high-modulus polyethylene gradually grew through the 1960s, starting with medical implants such as knees and hips, especially for spine implants since the 1980s. Our particular focus in this episode is what are known as high-performance fibers. These weren't properly invented until the 1970s, when the gel spinning method done by two companies, Honeywell in the USA and DSM in Holland, began making these fibers. In gel spinning, you dissolve the polymer chains in a hot solvent, maybe over 100 degrees Celsius, which untangles the chains, and then spin them through spinnerets. The untangled chains stay that way even after spinning and cooling. The most popular of these gel-spun fibers are Spectra, which dates from about 1985, and Dyneema, invented in 1968 
by Albert Pennings at the Dutch firm DSM, but commercially available only from about 1989. In the case of Dyneema, DSM was not in the fiber business, and Kevlar was already making a name for itself, so Dyneema remained a laboratory curiosity. A decade passed until 1978, when the DSM company finally decided to explore scaling up a small batch into industrial quantities. The firm chose Paul Smith and soon thereafter Pete Lemstra to work on scaling up. Finally, they got the gel spinning method to work and patented it in 1979. But DSM still wasn't fully into the idea and dropped the project by 1982. Then a colleague and neighbor of Smith, Rob Kirschbaum, also a DSM employee, drove home with Smith and heard about the cancelled Dyneema Fiber Project and took up the idea, but management still was skittish, wanting outside funding and know-how. Meanwhile, in the USA, the Allied Signal Company, now called Honeywell, invented a practically identical polymer called Spectra. The duo contacted Allied Signal and was able to work with them, noting DSM came up with the polymer first, and leveraging funding from Allied Signal, plus marketing it as a better product than DuPont's Kevlar. They got further support from the Japanese firm Toyobo, a textile firm. The name itself was originally supposed to be Dynema, but the Japanese objected because Dai is like daikon radish, Ne is like Japanese for number two, and Ma is like a mother-in-law. They settled on a modified name, Dynema. On a weight-for-weight basis, Dyneema is claimed to be 15 times stronger than steel. So you can imagine that Dyneema is now made into ropes, fishing lines, safety gloves, backpacks, camping equipment, and clothing. The next invention from our time period is the microfiber. Microfiber is defined as a fiber with a diameter smaller than 10 micrometers. Again, the invention itself dates back to the late 1950s, but the process back then created random length fibers, and nobody could figure out what to do with it. Better synthesis was achieved when a researcher at the Japanese firm Torre Industries, named Miyoshi Okamoto, was able to get such ultra-fine diameter fibers of a continuous length in the 1960s. He developed a synthetic microfiber fabric, a non-woven textile, a combination of polyester and polyurethane, which was improved by a colleague, Toyohiko Hikota. It got the trade name Ultrasuede by 1970, designed as a substitute for suede leather. The Japanese designer Issei Miyake first included ultrasuede in fashion the following year, and it was commercialized in the 1970s. In 1972, Okamoto and the Italian C Group, later called ENI, signed an agreement to market his ultrasuede, which finally renamed the material as Alcantara, 
and even took the corporate name Alcantara in Italy in 1981 as 51% Eni and 49% Torre. Alcantara is perhaps better known in Europe, while Ultrasuede is better known in the USA. Microfibers themselves, in a woven textile, finally became commercial under DuPont in 1989 and became widely distributed in Sweden soon thereafter. As to how they work in, say, cleaning cloths, this is the way. The tips of the fibers are split apart down to perhaps a third of a micrometer. Their stickiness to dirt and crud is based on van der Waals forces, which I mentioned first back in the laser spectroscopy episode. These van der Waals forces are based on shifts in electron density as electrons zip in their orbitals around atoms. As the electron density changes for a fraction of a second, atoms nearby can get attracted or repelled, even as they have their own temporary changes in electron density. Ultimately, it's a weak effect for one or a few atoms, but when you have a million tiny fiber tips all with this van der Waals force, it's enough to grab onto dirt molecules and bacteria. We turn to the polymer poly-P-phenylene-2,6-benzobisoxazole, or PBO for short, invented at SRI International in the 1980s. Originally, the SRI stood for Stanford Research Institute and became an independent, non-profit research organization in 1970. After the demise of RCA in the 1980s, SRI International also took over RCA's descendant, Sarnoff Corporation, in 1988. So, this polymer is a liquid crystalline material like Kevlar and Nomex, meaning that it can keep some significant molecular order even while it flows as a liquid. Its trade name is Xylon, Z-Y-L-O-N. It is made from two alternating monomers, terephthalic acid plus 4,6-diamino-1,3-benzido-dihydrochloride, but isn't easy to make or say, so can be expensive. It has a tensile strength a bit larger than Kevlar and is stiffer than steel. It became more widely used with many applications requiring metallic strength but the lightness of polymers. A downside is its sensitivity to ultraviolet light, leading to deterioration, so anything of xylon sitting in the sun needs anti-ultraviolet coating of some sort. Originally, Dow Chemical Company bought the rights to PBO from SRI and realized that working with a fiber company with know-how would bring the product to market, the same as DSN did with Dyneema. In 1994, Dow sold the rights to Toyobo, the same company that first made Ultra Suede. For example, in 1998, Xylon began being incorporated into police body armor. Except there was a problem five years later, when two vests failed, injuring one officer and killing the other. 
Eventually, the entire stock of Xylon police protective vests were recalled, leading to the marketing firm's bankruptcy. There were long-term investigations into deceptive business practices, only resulting in a settlement with Honeywell, the supplier of Xylon, in 2022. But there are many successes of Xylon. Inside special polyethylene high-altitude balloons from NASA, there are braided strands of Xylon keeping the balloon's structure. Formula One automobile racing now attaches the car's wheels to the chassis with Xylon ropes, so that if the car crashes, the wheels don't fly off into the crowds. Xylon is also used in racing helmets since 2011. Likewise, in yacht racing, Xylon is included into the rigging, particularly in stays and shrouds. This Xylon is coated to protect ultraviolet light from the sun. There are some conductive cloths which incorporate Xylon fibers, such as shielding against electromagnetic interference. To capitalize on the strength of Xylon, sometimes a Xylon mesh is used to strengthen deteriorating concrete and brick structures. There are some specialty bicycles and even wheelchairs with Xylon instead of metal spokes in the wheels. The goal is to lighten the vehicle and dampen vibrations. Apparently, the Yamaha Electronics Company uses Xylon as material in its high-end loudspeakers as well. In other uses for Xylon, it's included in higher-end tennis rackets, snowboards, and parts of Martian robotic rovers, such as the parachute harness, to drop the rovers onto the planet. Technora, our next polymer, is composed of the two monomers p-phenylenediamine and 3,4-diaminodiphenyl ether, and is, again, not dissimilar to Kevlar. The polymer was first created by the Teijin Limited Company in Japan in 1974, and was first unveiled to customers by 1980. The trade name Technora was registered in 1986, and first sold commercially in 1987 from Teijin's factory in Matsuyama. As a high-performance polymer, it's used for automotive belts, hoses, and flexible pipes. The filaments can be spun into a high-strength yarn and braided into cables and ropes. Its natural color is a dark yellow, or it is fabricated as a black polymer. Another liquid crystal-related polymer similar to Technora and Kevlar is Vectran, invented by Selenese, marketed in 1985 and now manufactured by Kurarai. It is made from the monomers 4-hydroxybenzoic acid and 6-hydroxynaphthalene-2-carboxylic acid. It has a naturally golden color with high strength. Often the fibers are used to reinforce ropes, sailcloth, and electrical cables. A disadvantage is that the fibers can fray and get tangled up in Velcro-style fasteners. 
Like many of these other polymers, it is also sensitive to ultraviolet light. Among Vectran's technical accomplishments is in NASA's space program, specifically the airbags for dropping Mars Pathfinder in 1997, and the twin robots Spirit and Opportunity in 2004. I personally had some experience with Vectran when I was a postdoctoral researcher at Rutgers University in a laboratory dedicated to nonlinear optical spectroscopy. This is a weird effect we haven't mentioned yet, so let me try to explain. When we usually talk about electrons in orbitals and the photons they absorb and emit upon changing their orbitals, most models simplify the electron and electromagnetic fields they sit in as something like a spring attached to a ball. And then you can use simple physics and Hooke's law to model the imagined spring. But suppose you really zap that electron with a massive electromagnetic field. You're making that electron vibrate a lot more intensely in response to that electromagnetic field. If you make the field strong enough, the spring model doesn't apply anymore, and Hooke's law doesn't work. This is called the nonlinear optical realm. Here, you need field densities so huge, say, more than 10 million volts over a meter distance, and you can get that strong field with high-powered lasers zapping at materials. The result is that you can get unusual effects, like shining a strong pulse of light at 800 nanometers, a deep, deep red color, and the electron responds by emitting a photon at double the frequency, half the wavelength, 400 nanometers, a purple-blue light. The frequency doubling is weak, but measurable and sometimes even visible. And that's the experiment we did. We put Vectran with long-chain molecules in the path of a super-high-powered red laser and saw blue light. We also saw that the most blue light was emitted from the Vectran when the molecular chains were oriented with the incoming red light's polarization. You can read the full results in the report Optical Properties of a Liquid Crystalline Random Copolyester in the Journal of Physical Chemistry B, 1999. This research is an interesting intersection of polymer chemistry and physical chemistry. A very similar liquid crystal copolyester polymer to Vectran is Xenite from DuPont. As we wind down this episode, I want to mention another similar liquid crystal copolymer, Zydar, X-Y-D-A-R, developed by Amico and commercialized by Dartco Manufacturing in 1984. As you may see, the liquid crystal copolymer, first discovered by DuPont in the 1960s as Kevlar and Nomex, spawned many similar and often better polymers for the next couple of decades. In our next episode, we learn of the history of how chemists tell other chemists about their discoveries in chemical journals. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.